So do you believe in miracles? One person said yes. Do you believe in honest to goodness, old-fashioned acts of God? Most of us would immediately answer, yes, I believe in miracles. But that's not exactly what I mean when I say, do you believe in miracles? I'm not asking you about the surprising events of life. I'm not asking you about the long-shot victories that your football team wins, especially your bag for Collingwood. <laughs> By miracle, I mean those contrary-to-human-possibility events that have no natural explanation. Oh, Neil, you mean things like the parting of the Red Sea or the rising, or the, sorry, the, how the sun stood still for Joshua for 24 hours? Or, or you mean miracles like those in the Bible that Christians in the, that believe in? Now, by definition, that kind of miracle doesn't happen every day. Those kinds of miracles happen very rarely. When they do happen, they are very hard to believe, partly because they don't happen very often and partly because we can't explain them. Even in the Bible, that kind of miracle is not an everyday occurrence. The resurrection of Jesus is that kind of miracle. It is a totally unexplainable, or it's totally unexplainable by human or natural means. That, 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 that may be why we don't talk about it very much and we're not sure how it happened. Now the crucifix we can the crucifixion, sorry, we can understand. The resurrection this morning is another matter. So let me put put it this way and let's go a le to a left field question. Lots of people wear silver crosses or gold crosses around their necks and that's okay. But you don't see many people wearing little silver empty tombs, do you? So I ask the question again, do you believe in miracles? Especially this, do you believe in the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus? In case you think that you have to answer yes just because you're sitting here in church, please put your mind at ease. If you answer no or I'm not sure, then you're in good company. There's a lot of people today who aren't sure whether they believe in it or not. And there were a lot of people on that first Easter Sunday who weren't sure either. Folks like Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon the Zealot, and a man whose name has become synonymous with doubt, Thomas. Doubting Thomas. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Thomas. We know, or so we don't know anything about where he came from or, we, or what he did before he became a disciple. We do have a little bit of a clue about his family. When you read about Thomas, he's usually introduced this way. Thomas, who was called Didymus. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, but, but to the original readers, uh, they would have recognised immediately that the name Thomas comes from the Aramaic word twin. And the word Didymus is the Greek word for twin. Thomas has a twin brother. Thomas has a twin sister. And the word twin is his nickname. So we know a little bit about his family origin or his family history from his nickname, Didymus or Thomas. 
It's unfortunate that Thomas is remembered solely in a negative light. There's more to this man than doubt. He first steps onto the stage of biblical history in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. And Jesus and the disciples are in the area of Jericho when they get word. And so as you can see, they've got to hike up a massive mountain because Jerusalem is on the top of one of the highest mountains in the Holy Lands. And so they've got to hike up. They're down below sea level. Jericho is right next to the Dead Sea. And they have to hike up. Now, by you can see the cutaway 3D map there. It's, it's a big walk. When Jesus decides to go to Bethany, his disciples remind him that the last time that he went to Judea, the religious leaders tried to stone him to death. And it could be, he could be going back. Uh, it's a suicidal attempt to go back to Jerusalem. So Jesus decides to go anyway. But the disciples were unconvinced. And at that point, Thomas speaks up and says, Let us go also, that we may die with him. It's a brief statement that reveals enormous courage. Thomas agreed that the Jewish leaders would probably kill Jesus if he went back to Jerusalem. And events would soon prove him correct. But what can you say about a man who says, if they kill him, they have to kill me too? It takes real, a real man to say that. It takes real courage to say that. There's love there. There's loyalty there. There's despair. There's sacrifice. There's a total commitment. Perhaps Thomas understood better than any of the other disciples about what was about to happen. And that brave statement, if we think about it, may explain why later on he doubts. Thomas appears one more time before the crucifixion. It's late Thursday night in the upper room. Jesus has just washed all of the disciples' feet and given them the great commandment to love one another. Judas leaves the room to go off and do his dirty deed. The rest of the disciples crowd around uh, the Lord Jesus, knowing the end is not far away. And Jesus says these words, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas has been listening carefully, quietly, intently. And all this talk of coming and going is too much for him. It seems vague, seems mysterious. And in a moment of great honesty, he blurts out and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And those are the words of a totally honest man this morning. The rest of the disciples were just as perplexed as Thomas. They, did, they said nothing. Only Thomas dares to speak out. We all know people like that, don't we? If they don't understand, what happens? They won't let the issue go, will they? They're like a dog at a bone. They keep asking until it makes sense. And that's Thomas. 
And that's the second key to his personality. He was an independent thinker. He was a thoughtful man, not easily rushed. He would not make a confession of faith unless he deeply believed it to be true. He let others have a glib and an easy faith that comes without reflection or any deep thought, but not Thomas. His was a faith, one, through the agony of personal struggle. So the picture we have of Thomas on the eve of the crucifixion is this. He was a brave man, intensely loyal and deeply committed to Jesus. If needed to be, he was ready to lay down his life. He is completely honest about his doubts and his confusion and his fears. And he's not satisfied with second-hand answers. Now the stage is set for the greatest crisis in this man's life. We tend to forget that it was what it was like on that first Easter morning. It's worth asking ourselves that we had been there would we have believed? Would we have doubted? Let's look at it in another way. What would it take to convince you that if someone you loved had come back to life after being dead for three days? Suppose it was a close friend or a family member and you saw them die. What would it take to convince you? Rising from the dead is not a common thing, is it? If we had been there in Jerusalem with Matthew, James and John, would we have believed those strange rumours that Sunday morning? Those who knew Jesus best were about to, weren't expecting, sorry, weren't expecting a resurrection. Now it's true that Jesus had predicted that he would uh, uh, be put to death and that he would raise to life, but his followers didn't understand it. A resurrection was the farthest thing from their minds. They had forgotten all his predictions. They had forgotten all that brave talk and they had given up. <clears throat> Who really expects a resurrection? Who expected a resurrection even on that Sunday morning? It wasn't the disciples. But there were someone, there were some people who expected a resurrection. It was the Jewish leaders who persuaded the Romans to seal the tomb. The enemies of Jesus feared something might happen. His friends weren't expecting anything. In fact, Mark 16 says that the women who came to the tomb on the Sunday morning came to anoint his body. And so in the confusion of trying to get the body into the tomb before sundown on Friday, spices had to be placed on Jesus' body, but not ointment. He wasn't anointed. So the women came back to finish the embalming job on Sunday morning. So what did they find when they got there? The stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. All four Gospels agree to that fact. The women didn't have the slightest idea what had happened. They weren't looking for, the, for a resurrection. And Mark says that even after the angel explained to them what had happened, they fled the tomb trembling and afraid. John says that even Mary thought someone had stolen the body. Luke adds that when the women came and told the apostles what the angel had said, they did not believe the women because the words, their words seemed to them like nonsense. 
nonsense. Of course, no one rises from the dead, not after three days, not after being scourged, not after hanging on a cross for six hours, not having a sword thrust into their side, not after being covered with 45 kilo of spices and wrapped up in burial cloth, not after being sealed into a tomb. No, the odds are against it. It was impossible. He was a nice man. He meant well. We loved him. We walked with him and he told us wonderful stories. And oh, those miracles he did, we laughed and laughed when he told off the Pharisees. Sure, he said he would rise again. We all believed then. He had never been wrong before. He said he was the Son of God. We're sure going to miss him. We're going to miss Jesus. Wouldn't it have been great if he had pulled it off? And Mark says, when they heard Jesus was alive, they did not believe it. So who could blame them? If any of us had been there, would we have believed? John tells us that Thomas was not present on the Sunday evening when Jesus suddenly appeared. There are basically two different ways people respond to sorrow and tragedy. Some seek solace in the company of their friends. They, they want people around them to help and talk to them and, and, and be with them and talk things out. Others prefer to be alone with their thoughts, and such was Thomas. Thomas was not with the disciples because his heart had been crushed. Everything he had, everything he had, he had given to Jesus, and now Jesus is dead. He still loves, he still cares. He still wants to believe, but his heart is broken. He is not a bad man, nor is he a doubtful sinner. Deep inside, he wants to believe, and we've all been in that place. And so, if you wish to call Thomas a doubter, please don't make him out to be an unbeliever. Some have tried to place him in the company of sceptics. He doesn't belong there. Thomas is definitely not a sceptic or a rationalist. His doubt comes from his devotion to Christ. There's no doubt like the doubt of a broken heart this morning. It's one thing to doubt the virgin birth in an, in a, in an academic setting. It's something else to lose someone you love and wonder if there is still a God in heaven. There are two kinds of doubters in the realm of, the, of spiritual truth. The first one is there's those hard-boiled rationalists who say, I don't believe and there's nothing that will make me believe. Now, such people enjoy their doubt. They talk about it. They laugh about it. They get angry when they're refuted. People like that are, are not looking for answers. They're looking for an argument. Isn't that right, Natalie? Yep. People like that are looking for an argument. They count the difficulties. They seize on the objections. They look for the loopholes. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were in that exact same category. When they asked Jesus for a sign, what did he do? He refuted them. And what did he call them after that? An evil and adulterous generation. But there's another kind of doubter. The person who says, I don't believe but I'm willing to believe if I can see for myself. Thomas fits this category. He's not an unbelieving sceptic, rather he's a, wondered, a wounded believer 
He's wounded. Let us remember Thomas didn't doubt the miracles in general. He had seen many of Jesus' greatest miracles, but this one was too big to take someone else's word for it. He had to see it and believe it for himself. And who could blame him? Who could blame him? No one wants to believe more than Thomas, but he had seen too much. He knew too much. All the facts pointed in one direction. But Thomas would believe. He had to personally see Jesus for Thomas to believe. And he had to be sure it was Jesus, not some dream or some vision. He had to be sure it was the same Jesus he saw die. And that's why he couldn't take the word of the disciples and not, not, on, not, not, not on something as important as this, as the raising and the resurrection of his friend and his Lord. He was not unwilling to believe, but he was unable. Now, some people are satisfied with the testimony of others. Some are not, and Thomas is one of those. He did he, he, he did he, he did he doubt the the truthfulness of the others? No, he didn't doubt the truthfulness of the others. He knew they believed that they had seen Jesus, but that wasn't enough for Thomas. And lots of people think they see things, but he couldn't he couldn't live with a second hand faith. He had to see Jesus for himself. When he said, unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe, there's much more than doubt in that. There's love, there's sorrow, there's pain. And there's a tiny grain of hope in that statement. Thomas stands for all time as one of the men who most desperately wanted to believe. And we can't blame him. And would we have been any different in this situation, in this circumstance? After all these years, Thomas has gotten a very bad reputation. Doubting Thomas, we call him. We tend to look down on him, but not Jesus. Eight days later, Jesus appears to the disciples a second time. This time, Thomas was with them. Jesus speaks to him as one whose faith is weak, not to one who has an evil heart, but to one whose faith is weak. And he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's worth noting that Jesus knew all about Thomas's doubts. He knew the raging sea that was within his heart, and he and he came just so Thomas could be sure. So Jesus didn't put him down. He said, "Go ahead. All you who wonder if this is true, see for yourself. Stop doubting and believe." And here's the wonderful truth this morning. That doubters are welcome at the, at the empty tomb. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the miracle we celebrate on Easter? If the answer is no, or I'm not sure, then welcome. It's okay to be an honest doubter. If you came that way and want to leave that way, it's okay. But when you're ready, Jesus will be there waiting for you. All that God asks is that people be consistent with themselves. He asks that you give this story the same treatment that you give any other story. Sift the evidence, judge the record, 
and come to a conclusion. It's okay to doubt, but don't let your doubts keep you away. Come to the empty tomb and see for yourself. When Thomas saw Jesus, he fell on his he fell to he fell onto his knees, didn't he? He fell down, and what did he exclaim? My Lord and my God. That stands as the greatest testimony given by any of the apostles. It's the climax of John's gospel, and it comes from a man who had the strongest doubts, my Lord and my God. It's a wonderful truth, and that truth is that the greatest doubters often become the strongest believers. And the honest doubters, once, once, well, the honest doubts, once resolved, become the bedrock of unshakable faith. It has been said that no truth is so strongly believed as that which was once doubted. In the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have often become the strongest believers. And that's why the story of Thomas is in the Bible. So that the honest doubter might be encouraged to bring their honest doubts to the empty tomb. Thomas did that and his doubts were washed away by the person of Jesus Christ. Alive from the dead. Now, as we close, just one more thing. No one can remain neutral forever. You can bring your doubts to the empty tomb, but you have to make a choice. You can't say or, or, or you can't sit on the fence forever. Either you believe or you don't. Today is a wonderful day to make that choice. It's a great day to stop doubting and start believing. You know that Jesus died. There is no doubt about that. You know that he died for you. And you know that he rose from the dead. However, the question God is asking is what have you done with my son? Jesus said to Thomas, and he says to us today, stop doubting and believe. Let us pray together. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the beauty of this Easter season. We thank you that the deepest questions of life are answered with simplicity and the simplicity of the empty tomb. Lead us into the garden of the resurrection where we may meet the Lord. May we never live again as Jesus were dead. May those who doubt now believe and find life through his name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who died and who rose and who lives forevermore. Amen. Amen.